to turn to the second reading of Scripture, which is Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. That's on page 738 of your pew Bible. We continue our sermon series in the, the book of Daniel. By reading verses 1 through 24. So I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. 
Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Wonderful things you have shown us, Lord, in your word. Wonderful things you have revealed to us. You know what is in the darkness, Lord, but the the light dwells with you. And you have made that light known to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds. Shine a spotlight on your word right now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were about to travel out into the wilderness and maybe enjoy a few weeks out there, you know, trekking through no man's land, uh, eating food off the land, you know, hiking where no one has ever traveled before. Let's say you, you, you're going to get on a helicopter and uh, be dropped into the woods of Canada. And uh, you're going to make your way back to that drop-off location. But in the meantime, you've got to survive for weeks and months. And well, let's, say you, let's say you're about to do that. What would you need to prepare you, you can think of all the things that you would need to have in your backpack, you know, objects, maybe you know, a flashlight and tools and, and a knife and those kinds of things. But really, you need more than that. You need the kind of wisdom, kind of skills for living in the wilderness that are going to allow you to survive when the sun comes beating down and when animals are creeping around your tent and when you're trying to find fresh water but don't know where to find it, when you're trying to start a fire but but don't have the tools you need and it's wet. You're going to need a survival guide that trains you to navigate the difficult terrain in the wilderness. And I've seen those kinds of books that pop up uh, now and then. You know, survival guide for, uh, for traveling in the wilderness, survival guide for, for roughing it in the woods. And um, maybe you yourself have thought about doing this at some point. I think you can see where I'm going with this, especially if you were here last week. You remember that Daniel, the book of Daniel, is a kind of survival guide for God's people as they are in the wilderness, in exile. Because you remember that there was a time when God's people, because of their sin, but also under the great and faithful control of God, were sent away from their home, from the land of promise, to a wilderness, to the land of Babylon. To live amongst a people whose primary aim was to get the people of Israel to conform to their ways and to bend under the pressures. People like Daniel, 13 to 16 years old. That's how old he and his friends were when they were shipped out to Babylon. And very soon they realized, we're not in Israel anymore. We need a guide. We need help to stay faithful to our God, to know how to navigate in wisdom, skillful ways to stay faithful to God. We need a survival guide. And that's exactly what God's word is. And it's exactly what the book of Daniel 
is for us as we today navigate life in Babylon. First Peter five, you can look, there's a place in that passage where Peter says, send my greetings to the lady who is at Babylon. What's he saying? He's saying that even today, even while the empire of Babylon has come crumbling down, its schemes and pressure still remain. That we can find ourselves, and we do in fact find ourselves today, right now, in a culture that is different from the culture of the God of Israel. And a place in which we are pressured to conform and give in and live according to its ways. And, and, and we are told, stand fast. Well, Daniel is that very kind of book. You know, a lot of people think, well, Daniel, isn't it all about prophecy? Uh, well, there's a lot of prophecy at the end portion of the book. But then you look at it and you have to make sense. Well, how does the same book have all these narratives at the beginning? And the key, brothers and sisters, is this. That Daniel is not primarily a book about what's coming in the future. It's definitely that. But it's primarily, first and foremost, a book about how exiles, how people wandering through the wilderness of a foreign culture stay faithful to God. And that's exactly what we see in in Daniel chapter 2 as we continue. We looked at chapter 1 last week and and the kind of pressures and the faithfulness that the youth committed themselves to. But in chapter 2, finally, Daniel's training has come to an end. And here he is uh, with his friends and they have their first real, you could say, life or death moments before Babylon, before the king. And it comes in this strange form of a dream contest, a dream contest. And it's this contest that actually teaches us about the kind of wisdom we need as we navigate this time in the wilderness, this time of exile. Let's look at this dream contest, because I think you can see we're going to look at Daniel chapter two in two installments. If you're saying, I want to know the dream, I want to know what it was about. You got to wait till next week. I'm sorry. But there was so much in this passage, so much that we exiles need to listen in and hear that I just felt we needed to break this into two portions. The dream contest comes to us out of this strange night terror that King Nebuchadnezzar has. Now, I used to have night terrors. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and like, you know, I have sweat on my face and, and my heart is racing because I just had the most horrible dream and it felt so real. Maybe you have had something like that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has one of those dreams, but he just can't shake the sense that there is something about that dream that has a deep importance for him. In fact, this is what dreams were thought of in, in Babylon especially. There, you know, today you have a dream and you think, ah, oh, you know, that was, that was kind of weird. But in Babylon, if you had a dream like that, especially if you had a nightmare and there were vivid details that gripped your heart, then guess what? You couldn't just walk away and say, that was weird. You had to say, What does this mean for me? Because it must be shedding some sort of light on my future. King Nebuchadnezzar, when he has this dream, he feels feels his very life being pulled out from under him like a rug. What are the things that Nebuchadnezzar loves and values? His power, his authority, his rule and reign as the greatest king on the faces of the earth. And yet here comes this nightmare. And what does it do? It starts to 
to poke holes in his confidence about his reign and ask questions like, could this dream be from some higher power showing me that my reign is about to end? Could this dream mean something for me? Could this dream be taking everything that I love, everything that I find security in and be taking it out of my hands? And so King Nebuchadnezzar is rocked to his core. I've got to figure out what this means. And there's hints in the text that he doesn't even remember the dream itself, right? He says, well, if they tell me the dream, then I'll, I'll know what it was. But, but there's, there's hints in the text that it might be the case that he doesn't even remember the dream itself, the vivid details, and he needs someone to provide that for him. And so he sets this contest before the people. He pulls together the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, the Chaldeans. And he tells all the wise men of Babylon, tell me the dream. Tell me that's interpretation. Succeed and great honor awaits you. Fail and you die. We see the first group that steps up to try to take a whack at this dream and They are, again, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the best and the brightest of Babylon's schools of wisdom. They are a think tank composed of the scientific experts and the religious gurus of the day. These are the guys with the the impressive titles, the fancy degrees that they've taken years to achieve. Uh, You could call them the wizards of Babylon, right? They're the guys who should have all the answers. And And time again in the past, the king has turned to them and trusted them with probably dreams just like this or other important matters in Babylon. And so imagine how surprised they were when the king gives them a challenge that they just can't meet. The men who usually have all the answers find themselves speechless speechless after one word from the king and their heart sinks. And what is that word? He says this, I want to know the interpretation of the dream, but I also want to know the dream itself. Tell me what I saw. Tell me the images and then tell me what they meant. Now you could see why they're scratching their heads, right? Because it's easy to come up with something that's plausible, right? If, if you told me about a dream of a horse and you're riding on it and you fell off and you hurt your knee and I could say, well, well hang on there. I'm starting to get something. Um, I think that you have a grave misfortune coming to your life. I could make up some silly mumbo jumbo like that, couldn't I? And the Babylonians had these kinds of, um, they actually had books full of interpretations so that when the king would uh, throw a dream their way, they had a book. And they'd say, oh, he saw this image. And they would kind of cipher it out and say, king, I know exactly what to tell you. And they would, in these vague terms, feed the king something that would satisfy him. But this dream, the king knows there's something to it. Something that just rocks him deep down. And he doesn't want just some plausible answer. He wants to know really what it's all about. And so you can see he's almost fed up with them. Almost from, he, he almost comes to them suspecting they're going to try to pull something over his eyes because he says, you know what? If you can't tell me the dream and its meaning, then you all die. I've had enough with you. I've had enough with your charades. 
Tell me the dream and its interpretation or you all die. And these guys push back, right? They say, king, may you live forever, but you're asking us to do something that is not possible. And the king says, my word is firm. You provide the dream, you provide its interpretation. You provide both of them. Or I know you're a sham and you die. In fact, the wording here is is even more than that. He says, and your houses will be turned into a dunghill. I'll take take the places where you and your family live and I'll mow it down and I'll I'll use it as a place where we all, where we we pile up horse stuff. Well, they're in quite the bind. In fact, they know this. In verse 10 through 11, they admit that this is just not possible. Look, this is a very important passage. Verse 10, he says this, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or or Chaldean. And here's what he says. The thing that the king asked is difficult. And here's why. Because no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see, they've just admitted the basic problem with all worldly wisdom. I want you to see what is happening in this first part of the contest with, it, with these, these uh, wizards of Babylon. What they are showing you is the complete bankruptcy of the world's wisdom. Complete bankruptcy of the world's wisdom. And what they're admitting in this passage is the basic problem with all worldly wisdom. It's trapped inside a box. Now, imagine, kids, that you have a snow globe in front of you. Now you say, oh, snow globe, it's... It's starting to get hot outside. Why are you taking us back to Christmas? Well, just bear with me. You've got a snow globe right in front of you and you look inside and you've got little figures, little tiny people. And they're, um, they're in the snow globe and you can shake it up and you can, um, you, you can see it fall down upon their little houses. Now imagine that those people are alive. Those tiny little snow globe people are alive within the globe, right? We're imagining that. It's not really the case, but... Now, now imagine what those little snow globe people would think of as they go about their day-to-day lives within the box, within the globe, uh, the glass that's around them. They could come up with all sorts of theories for why uh, there's this big, you know, giant shaking thing that happens and then the snow starts to fall, right? They could have all sorts of theories as to uh, what is happening outside the globe or, you know, what's going on inside the globe and they could imagine, well, maybe it's when we stomp our feet in the, you know, and the snow does its thing. But here's what I want you to see. There's no theory that those little snow globe people can come up with that would really offer a true explanation for what's going on outside the globe. They could try to do it, but they can't come up with the right theory from within the globe itself. You have to be outside of the snow globe, looking in at what's happening to be able to decipher what's going on inside the globe. And that's the very problem with our world today. That's the problem with the the theories of worldly wisdom that are spun off one after another about what this life is about. It all comes from within the box of our universe, within the container You see scientists and and experts who can do incredible things. 
I'm not trying to downplay them. What can they do? They can manipulate the universe around them in in incredible ways. They can reach inside the box and, and, and do all sorts of amazing things. They can build rockets that go to the moon. We can have billions of pieces of information at our fingertips. We can understand the genetic code. We can even go so far to manipulate that that genetic code and start to manufacture what kind of human beings um, we, we want to see. Those are incredible, incredible powers. But you ask just one basic question. What's man's purpose? And all the great experts of the world You know, get a blank look on their face. Or you ask a question like, you know, hey, I see you can do these incredible things with genes and you can manipulate them, but hey, how, how far is too far? And suddenly everyone says, wait, that's a good question, right? You, you see, they're just basic questions that show that despite the great power and abilities of the world and its experts, it can only go so far. It comes up bankrupt At a point, it cannot answer the deep mysteries of life. No ultimate answers can be provided. Um, And this is really what we see with all all false worldviews, all attempts to drum up the deep answers to life from within the universe itself. What do they all have in common? They're all like... um, like a cul-de-sac, right? What's a cul-de-sac? It's, I, I lived on one when I was growing up. It's one of those streets that you get to it and it just goes in circles and circles and you go around looking at all the pretty houses, but you've hit a dead end. And the only way to get out is to turn back around. It doesn't really go anywhere. That's what these worldviews are like. They try to answer the deep questions of life from within, but they can't. Complete bankruptcy of worldly wisdom. That's what we're seeing here on display with Daniel as as the great experts of Babylon scratch their heads. Now, let me ask you a question, friends. Nebuchadnezzar turned to his experts in Babylon and was sorely disappointed. Here's my question for you. What sources do you turn for for wisdom? What sources do you turn for Turn to for skills with living. Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Is it the next self-help book that you saw was on the top 10 chart on Amazon? Is it blogs? Is it the stock market gurus on Wall Street? I can promise you one thing. They They will have many, many words to share with you. They'll never run out of words. But they can't provide you the deep answers, the deep, the deep solutions to our greatest questions of life. Here's another way to ask this. You say, well, you know, those sources, yeah, I, I take a look at them sometimes, but um, that's not wrong, of course. You understand me to look at them. But here's a deeper question that might get you more to the heart of this. What stories are shaping your narrative All of us are living life with with a kind of narrative guiding us, right? A kind of overarching story that gives meaning and purpose and direction to our lives. Now, if I ask you that question, what, 
what stories are shaping your narrative, you'll start to see that we in many ways do struggle. Christians sitting here in the pulpit, we struggle not to be won over by the wisdom of this world. Because the myth of romantic fulfillment can be quite, quite the powerful draw, can't it? Here we are in the middle of our lives and we see um, you know, a beautiful woman or a beautiful man or a handsome man. And, um, and here you are where you suddenly start to uh, see your whole life is given over to winning that person, living for them. And suddenly you find that uh, as the end of life draws near, that you put all of your life into something to someone who could not give you the deep longings of your heart. Or maybe you give over your heart to the myth of material gain. You live every day, you know, cranking out work to try to uh, make your bank account sturdy. Also that one day you can, you, can, you can see all of that money left behind you as you go into the world to come. And we need to beware, friends, of the, of the wizards of Babylon, of the stories and the things and the sources that can pull our hearts and try to make meaning out of them from within the universe itself. They can't provide ultimate answers. Do you see that? I want you to ask yourself, what stories am I telling myself? What have I given myself over to that I, ha- that I shouldn't have? Parents, we can do this too, can't we? When we sell our, we, we feed to our hearts the, the myths that are bouncing around the culture of parenting in the world, where we tell ourselves, if only I raise my kid and do all the right kind of discipline techniques, if only I'm a master of technique with my children, and when they do this, um, I give them rewards, and when they do that, um, I punish them, then they'll turn out great. You know what that's called? It's called behavioralism. It's a philosophy of this world. There's, there's a kind of truth to it, but only partially. And if you put all your stock in it, it's going to come crumbling through when you do everything right and your kid still demonstrates that they're a sinner that desperately needs the grace of God. Do you see that? And so, friends, it's so easy for us to give ourselves over to the wisdom of this world, but it fails us time and time again. But you know what does not? The profound wealth of God's wisdom. News comes to Daniel in verse 14 that the king is killing all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel, at this time, has ended up as part of that crew, right? He's faithful to God, we've already seen. And in fact, here's the moment to do what God's been uh, preparing him to do, to show Babylon that his faithfulness to God is greater than conformity to the world. Here's Daniel's first moment to really shine. And so Daniel inserts himself into this contest. He says, let me take a whack. And it's not Daniel who ends up in the spotlight, is it? It's Daniel's God. It's our God. So what is true of the God of Israel when we are deeply disappointed in the wisdom that this world offers? It's that he is He is in control of the future. Do you see that? In verse 20 through 21, Daniel prays, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets kings up. 
What is he saying? That, that this, that the God who controls the future is outside the box. He is outside the snow globe of our existence because he created us. He created the world. He knows it intimately and he's outside of it so he can look in and, and control it all with his sovereign and mighty hand. Transcendent, exalted, outside of the wisdom for, of this world. Now that's the kind of God who could provide the very kind of skillful living and, and the answers to the deep mysteries of life that we need. Here's one more thing that is true about this God, worthy of praise. Verse 22 through 23, God not only controls the future, he also reveals the future. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Verse 21, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, here's what is so beautiful about this God. He's the opposite of the God of the Chaldeans. He's not a God of silence. He's a God who speaks and speaks into this world, the container of this world, and speaks into the globe through its glass, as it were, telling us the wisdom we need, how we need to live. So here's the main point of this chapter is that God really does dwell with men. The God of Israel dwells with men. Only God's wisdom can reveal the mysteries of life. And that's what he does for Daniel. And in a vision of the night, he reveals the dream and its interpretation. We're going to look at that more next week. But here I want to ask you a question. Where do we find that kind of wisdom today? Where do we access God's wisdom? Visions and dreams? No, not today. And the word of God in the Bible. The Bible, you see, this, the very word of God, what does it do? It comes to us as God's, God's very interpretation, his answer to our questions about the deep matters of life. God answers the deep questions and guides us through those murky waters, through those difficult personal decisions. God's Word comes to us as a survival guide for our time in exile, right as we're struggling to find the right sources and interpret reality. Here, God's word comes to us and guides us. Isn't that encouraging? Is that how you see your Bible? Do you see it as helping us to focus on what is truly important, making sense of all the sources out there and discerning? Doesn't that make you want to lean in and, and, and read your Bible and, so that you can have wisdom? to live according to the word of the Lord. And friends, the Bible is able to do this. Why? Why, do, why can the Bible do this? Because its central subject matter is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ isn't a theory. He isn't an idea. He isn't some, some complicated Theory that the experts of this world have drummed up. No, he is God himself come to dwell with man. He's a person. And because of this, we have all the wisdom we need. Now think about this. What does Jesus give to us? Jesus gives us the wisdom of God come to show us what right faithful living looks like. And we see that throughout the scriptures, but also through his very example. He came to show us what the, what the very purpose of man is and how we are to live in light of that. 
And he comes to help us not only with those big objective questions like, what is my purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? And and not only to answer questions about you know, life and, and how to navigate the complexities of life, but also those personal decisions about our day-to-day lives. You know, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? Should I get married? What should I do with my money? Jesus comes alongside you. And because we have this vibrant relationship, not with an idea, but with a person who is with us to dwell with us, we can come to him And we can find guidance for every matter of life. We can pray to to our God and ask him to guide us as we know Jesus. You know, we could say, Lord, help me to know Christ more. And in knowing him more, what do we have? We have wisdom, decision-making ability to, to navigate the complexities of this life. And finally, in Christ, we have the kind of wisdom that has come to set our hearts free from the love of this world so that we can really love what God loves, not our sins, not our idols, but him. And to make decisions that aren't clouded by sin, but are governed by love love for God. Now, you see, friends, that is where the cross shows us the wisdom of God. The cross is where God's mercy and his wisdom meet perfectly in one person. What does this mean for us? Let me give you two final challenges. First of all, friends, we have before us a golden opportunity to bless a cynical world with the wisdom of God. You turn to Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter four, verses Five through six says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, we might not have Nebuchadnezzar coming to us, asking about us, about his dream. But you might have, you might have your Muslim neighbor ask you about, tell you about a dream that they had. You might have your friend come to you and say, you know, what's it all about anyways? Why am I, why am I doing this in life? What's, what's really my purpose? You might have someone come to you with a difficult question. They say, you know, I'm just riddled by fear after seeing the news and about school shootings and these horrible things. You know, how, how can I send my kids to school knowing that this has happened? What should I do? And you know what? In the midst of all that, You have the opportunity, wisdom from the cross that can save those who are struggling with those deepest questions of life and and not only free them from those sources that can only feed them empty lies, but, but really this, can lead them to the God who can fill their lives with meaning and purpose and freedom from sin. We have a story from God that offers lasting answers and direction from any of the questions that our friends would bring us. And you know what's so beautiful about this? It's not just, you know, feeding them answers. It's also seeing them blessed. We have an opportunity to be Daniel 
in Babylon, stepping up to, you know, to the dream competition where our world fails so that we could actually bring blessing to those who are, whose heads are spinning. Why are we so slow to seize this opportunity? Friends, I have to wonder, is it, is it because of our prayerlessness? Is it because we struggle to pray like Daniel did before the throne of grace? God, give me mercy and give me answers so that I can be a light to those around me, so that I, I'm not only myself saved from the death that this world offers, but that they will be saved from it too. Are we praying out of desperation? Are we like Daniel saying, God, give me the answers or I perish. Give me direction or they perish too. We, we ought to be on our knees, brothers and sisters, together praying. And then we have a golden opportunity to give thanks to God for his gift of divine wisdom in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that here's Daniel, his life is on the line, but before he gets the dream, goes rushing back to the king, he says, first, I have to thank my God. I have to thank him. Have we thanked God for giving us insight from the cross, life-saving wisdom that can free us from our deepest sin, that can free us from our deepest confusion and darkness. We ought to do that right now. Go to our God thanking him. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom that comes from the cross. Lord, to the world it is foolishness, but we have seen that your cross is power and wisdom and might. For in it, Lord, you you demolished the idols of this world and you brought them to nothing. You showed that they can do nothing for us. But your son, suffering for our sins, taking upon himself the wrath that our sins deserve. Lord, that is everything. He is everything. Help us to find in him our greatest satisfaction in life so that we can really be a blessing to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.